three times I had mortars falling next to me. One of them, the only thing that separated me from that mortar was a wall. Mortars would fall uh, haphazardly, randomly, killing innocent people. For the few first minutes, you would have this great fear. Was that my moment? The question would be. Welcome to Every Wave, a podcast about suffering and taking what life throws at you. Today, our guest will speak to us about his experiences in the Syrian civil war. Part 1, A Crisis on the Rise. My name is Jake Kaler. I'm Cameron Sadler. I'm Lauren Komberger. And I am Katie Strayer. Today we're going to be speaking about the issue of suffering and how it relates to the experiences of a particular individual. Here in America, it's easy to get stuck in our own modes of thinking. For a fresh angle, we will be considering suffering from the perspective of Asian philosophy, seeking to understand thought patterns that shaped culture on a wide portion of the globe. Though many of these traditions are religious in nature, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., we will be approaching them from a purely philosophical perspective. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. The person we interviewed is Mr. Yad Jabor, who came to America from Syria about two years ago. Yad Jabor and his family were caught in the beginnings of the Syrian Civil War, a conflict that arose in 2012, following the events collectively referred to as the Arab Spring, which began in 2011. Belligerents in the conflict include the Syrian government, the Syrian opposition, a term referring to multiple anti-government groups, namely the Syrian National Coalition, and the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, commonly referred to in the English-speaking world as ISIL or ISIS. Iyad and his family's survival is nothing short of amazing. We'll let him tell his story. I am Iyad Jabour, a Syrian-American, lived in Syria uh, my whole life studied in Jordan as a pharmacist for uh, six years, then moved back to Syria um, in 2007 to uh, start working. I uh, do have a family of uh, two children, my wife, uh, and all my family used to live in Syria. My dad studied here in Cook County, Chicago. Uh, This is how we got our citizenship from my dad. So uh, we're going to say that Syria is a third world country, that's for sure. So um, we did live in a kind of weird situation, first for a third world country and for an Islamic country, I can say. Being a third world country, that meant that Syria was under a dictatorship. But at the same time, Syria was the best country in the Islamic world and in the Arabic world where all people had social and religious freedom. I can say we had complete religious and uh, social freedom, not to minorities only, but to everyone. No one was suppressed from doing any of his uh, religious festivals, processions, feasts. So every all people uh, were equal whether socially, whether economically, and uh, whether religiously. You can um, open whatever uh, work. Uh, All colleges, all universities were open equally to all people. Of course, we had a great corruption and a a dictatorship. Uh, At the same time, everything was available in Syria, whether it's food or drink, water, electricity, uh, everything that would make uh, a country civilized. So 
it's it's different than other third world countries where you see nothing and you have nothing and people struggle the whole time with their life. Yes, um, income was low, uh, but at the same time, no one suffered having no home. Everyone had food at the end of the day on his table. A little bit later in the interview, Iyad went on to tell us about his experiences as tensions were beginning to rise in his country. Here's how he responded to the things that were happening. Um, so to me, my experience as, a, as an opposition and who, someone who wanted uh, things to change and uh, being a pro-democracy, um, I believe that this is something that no one can change because it was far much more stronger than us. What I learned in my church, which uh, happens to be the Orthodox Church, is that things that we cannot change by our hand, we, we ask God to change it. Um, and that is by praying. So I would go every day to the church just to pray with tears for the regime and the government to change. Analex 11.10 When Yahweh passed away, the master cried for him excessively. The disciples reproved him, saying, Master, surely you are showing excessive grief. The master replied, Am I showing excessive grief? Well, for whom would I show excessive grief if not for this man? So at this point, Iyad has found himself faced with something that is too big. Uh, he can't really, he has no way of fixing this problem on his own. And rather than dwell on it, I think it's interesting that he goes to church and he just prays about it. He, he's almost putting it outside of himself and giving it up to God uh, as if to say that he is truly weak and incapable of solving this problem on his own. One of the things that comes up in a lot of the texts that we've studied has to do with non-attachment, detaching yourself from action and from suffering and from the things going on around you as a way of gaining peace. But Iyad is still showing grief. He still weeps when he goes to the church and prays. And that's a reason why I like this passage from Confucius. When Confucius's disciple Yan Hui passed away, he does grieve for him. He grieves for him so much that his own disciples rebuke him for it. And yet Confucius's response is that in this situation, that level of grief is warranted. I think that the same could be said of Hiyad, that in watching his own home and his own country slowly fall apart like this, that grief was warranted. In the Zen source book, chapter 17, verse 13, the master was fanning himself when the Zen master, Pauche of Mount Mayu, approached him and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanent, and there is no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? The master replies and says that if you do not need to fan yourself because of the nature of wind is permanent, and you can have wind without fanning, you will not understand either permanence or the nature of wind. I think that's similar in the way that Iyad has religious beliefs, but instead of just believing something or knowing it in his head, he goes and he acts out and he prays, and he actually puts action behind his intentions. I think he's mostly disconnecting himself in a way that he's giving it up to a higher power. He knows that's what his religion needs him to do. 
He is still going about his duties as a father and as a husband and continuing to work at his job. That is, I mean, that that is a good point because he's actually, in that way, he is owning his beliefs. He does not just claim his own religious beliefs. He actually, he acts upon them. Even if he's acknowledging that he is powerless in the face of the societal change that is occurring, he's still remaining active in the other aspects of his life. Now that you say something about his religious beliefs, maybe here is where we should discuss at least briefly the gap, perhaps, the most noticeable gap between Christianity and these Asian philosophies, and that's theism. Christianity, obviously, uh, you know, rooted in a god. And then the philosophies that we've discussed in class and that we've read about are, for the most part, not dogmatically theistic, other than Hinduism. And, I mean, the difference is important, but I think that obviously we can still see parallels between Iyad's philosophy and the philosophies of of the East. Well, since you bring that up, uh, why don't we take the time to talk about some of those? What what are some of the important differences between Iyad's own worldview and the worldview that many of these philosophies are coming out of? The biggest one is that even though a lot of these Asian philosophies have some concept of a transcendent thing, perhaps you could call it God, the God of the Christian church is a personal God. He has a will and he interacts with mankind. It's not a force or a, or a thing. God thinks. God has desires. God wants to relate to mankind. Something very important about God, as far as Iyad is concerned, uh, has to do with his grace. He gives gifts. And there seems to be a difference between God as a giver of gifts and God as a source of peace. As far as Iyad is concerned, God is both. But we can't really talk about God as a giver of gifts in any of our other philosophies, can we? Unfortunately, despite Iyad's prayers, the situation in Syria only worsened. Things escalated in several cities in Syria. Then, uh, at the beginning of 2012, it came to my city, Aleppo. Part 2. Life in the War Zone By July of 2012, terrorists had taken half of Aleppo by storm. Mortars fell. People were kidnapped. Chaos became the norm of Iyad's life. In this portion of the podcast, we will seek to understand how he dealt with his new reality. One day before I woke up on a great blast that was maybe half an hour away, it shocked the whole city of Aleppo. This is how bad it was and big, and it destroyed the central part of the downtown. Uh, Of course, things were very bad. Fear was there. One time, or actually three times, I had mortars falling next to me. One of them, the only thing that uh, separated me from that mortar was, was a wall of, uh, of a school. And uh, one day we woke up where it was nothing but Allahu Akbar and machine guns under us and helicopters coming to fight those terrorists who managed 
to sneak under our buildings where we lived. That was outside, but underneath. Actually, my wife opened the balcony just to see what's happening, and there was a terrorist holding a gun, and she had to throw herself before he uh, shot on her. I can say when it was that close, there was a great fear. But at the same time, my believing really, really helped uh, help me because I do remember that at certain times you would have this fear, uncertainty, what could happen. You would ask yourself, how long is it going to be before I be the next one? When it's random, you don't know, especially when you lived in a country that nothing happens, nothing really major. So it was so random. And because I'm in hospital and uh, my pharmacy was just on the door of the emergency room, I would see every man, woman, child who got, um, you know, shot or had a debris from mortar. People lost their hands, part of their heads, their legs. So I can say sometimes the fear was there. It was it was a huge fear when you see that happening very near. At the same time, I really had the strength, which was weird, part of it because of the social life, people strengthening each other. And after a while, you kind of get used to death and to all the bad images of people that you see. But of course, when it happens just next to you, it freshens things up. I've known people who crashed, who couldn't stay. It crashed people. People left. They did not want to stay anymore in Aleppo. And I know people who since that day, that's 2012, they did not return back. But really, having to trust Christ, and I do really believe in the resurrection, and this really helped me from you know, crashing, because as much fear as you get, as long as you are not desperate and you do not fear death itself for any reason, you can continue your daily life, although it's very dangerous. In the Zen Source book, chapter 14, it says that present events are right in front of you. Whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, don't fix your mind on them. If you do fix your mind on them, it will disturb your heart. Just take everything in its time, responding according to circumstances, and you will naturally accord with this principle. Iyad does this throughout his experience in Syria. Whenever he sees the people coming in and out of the hospital, instead of fixating on that and allowing it to create a bunch of fear in him, he continues to do his job. He's, he's, sort, of, he's sort of taking things as they come, is what you're saying, I think. I agree on that point, and it also kind of reminded me of the sixth teaching, verses 21 through 22 of the Bhagavad Gita. It said that absolute joy beyond the senses can only be grasped by understanding. When no one knows it, he abides there and never wanders from this reality. Obtaining it, he thinks there is no greater gain. Abiding there, he is unmoved, even by deep suffering. I feel like that relates on the point that he is very much disconnecting himself. It may not be to the point of the Bhagavad Gita where it's an absolute joy by understanding, but... He's able to disconnect himself from the horrific things he's seen and as such is unmoved even by deep suffering so that he can continue doing his work and what is necessary of him to perform his duty. I would be interested in trying to clarify what we mean when we talk about 
um, uh, what were the terms that you used? Disconnecting? Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about disconnecting himself from all of the suffering going on around him, because it seems like, I mean, he certainly is feeling the pain of watching his home turn into a violent war zone, and that's affecting him. But he's also not letting it affect him to the point that he can't function. And he does say that at a point where he talks about other people who are um, beginning to break down, that uh, just witnessing all of these things, these horrific things unfold is too much for them. Somehow Iyad manages to keep going. And I'm, I'm wondering what is the best way to understand that? Is he really disconnecting himself from it? I think he's mostly disconnecting himself in the way that he's giving it up to a higher power and he realizes that it's no longer something in his control and there's nothing that he can do. And similar to some of the other passages, he's not just knowing his religion and knows what it's about, but he is putting it into practice and he is able to completely give it up and wholeheartedly believe that it is out of his control and that it's not something that he needs to worry to be worried about because it's not on him to change anything. Mm. To further that point, I will concur that it relates a lot back to his earlier comment of going to church every day. He's taught that it is not in his control. And again, much like in the Bhagavad Gita's third teaching, verses 30 through 31, Krishna says to Arjuna, surrender all actions to me and fix your reason on your inner self. Men who always follow my thought, trusting it without finding fault, are freed even by their actions. So when I mean he is disconnecting, I don't refer so much that he is not feeling it because he is definitely grieving, but he is able to keep going in what his situation because he knows it's all without or all out of his control. And there's also that point where he mentions the Christian doctrine of the resurrection at the end of time, which is a major thing for him in terms of in terms of being able to persist and continue living life amidst all of these things. He's putting his hope on something that is entirely outside of this material world. Is there anything that we've come across that could be related to that? I'm not, think, I'm not saying that we'll find something that's completely analogous to that, but just some idea of um, not putting one's hope in the material world. We had several points of that in the Bhagavad Gita. It says repeatedly that these material objects of the world are just bringing grief and desire is the ultimate cause of suffering. But even to further that point, it further coincides in that his idea that he is putting all his hope in this idea of resurrection and beyond life, not just in non-attachment to these objects, but in this idea of heaven and something better. It even says that in the Bhagavad Gita's second teaching, verses 11 through 12, you grieve for those beyond grief. You speak words of insight, but learned men do not grieve for the dead or the living. Never have I not existed, nor you, nor these kings, and never in the future shall we cease to exist. There's this repeated idea of every, there is something beyond what we just see here, both in the Christian doctrine, the Bhagavad Gita, or a lot of our texts. There's something uniting about everything that's beyond just what you experience individually. Uh, so one of the things I think that that stood out to me early on, Jake, was when you were discussing um, Yad giving giving everything up to God and recognizing that this situation he was in was beyond his control. He's recognizing, I think, within himself, it, uh, like you said, like there was like maybe this weakness 
and this to me was interesting just because uh, we when we talk about Buddhism, which I think is the the lens kind of that you were using to look at it there, um, we see that a lot of Buddhism ideals and Taoism or Taoist ideas are they're in line with one another, but this kind of stands in contrast in that in that in Taoism the self is incredibly strong and has uh, an immense amount of potential because it's natural and all natural things are within it as well. Um, so the contrast there is interesting to me that there's two things that are normally very in line with each other, but here accepting things very Buddhist is in contrast with, uh, with Taoism and kind of being a powerful self. The worst part was for everyone mostly, was that if they managed to get to you and enslave your wife and take her children to where you never know where, uh, that would be the worst part ever. Um, we've seen people who came from parts that were uh, taken by terrorists, and you would see that What's beyond sadness, what's beyond anger, and what's beyond pain when they do not know what happened to their wives, when um, they do not know what happened to their children. And they weren't crying because, you know, once you see that happens, you are beyond that. You're like in a different world. So that was maybe the number one concern and fear. Zen Buddhism says that if you meet your parents, kill your parents. If you meet your relatives, kill your relatives. That sounds really harsh, but what they're saying is that you need to be unattached to things. It goes on to say, only then will you find emancipation. And by not clinging to anything, you will be free wherever you go. Iyad talks about the worst thing would be to not know what happened to your wife and what happened to your children. But if he was to go by a Zen Buddhist approach... It wouldn't matter because he wouldn't be attached. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us to even imagine. For them to even say kill your parents sounds so harsh and it's unfathomable to us. But I think in Zen Buddhism, that's the only way that you would be able to be completely free from pain and from suffering. Part 3. Interchange while the horrors of the Syrian crisis are now far removed, they remain present in Iyad's mind. Here he reflects on how it has affected him. I mean, of course, of course, you would discover yourself more. And I discovered maybe far more and more how much God is with us. I have more confidence in the praying. And, and the other thing that I maybe learned more and more and really more was I cannot rely on anything. And that uh, all the dreams, I let me put it this way, the earthly dreams that I had now doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, after I saw how everything could be lost in a second, everything that stood there can be vanished. Um, uh, things that existed uh, and you will wake up the next day and it's not there. The Maybe the most important thing to me was the civilization that we had in Syria, Palmyra, Dead Cities, uh, San Simeon uh, Monastery, and a lot and a lot others. Uh, and 
you read in the news how it's gone today. Uh, it's not there anymore. Uh, this is why I always say, I, when I came here, I said it was maybe the wrong time to come to the United States in my life because I don't care much about anything else. Uh, I mean, all these dreams about having uh, cars, I would say that in my country, cars are double the price here. So you can imagine how expensive it is. Uh, so you, you have this dream uh, having a huge house. I literally say that I told my wife since we came that there's nothing that I care about anymore because I do not have dreams, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. There's nothing now that attach me, especially when you think about all these people that lost their lives. Uh, material stuff cannot be any more important. And I don't know how, man, how many people experience that, but uh, till now I believe that it's a grace. It's a grace that... Um, that God gave me because I always wondered how can I detach myself from material things that should not mean anything. Um, I guess uh, we found a way. It's not a nice way, but always you can get uh, you can get good stuff from bad things. A poem by the nun Bin Ming, written in the twelfth century. Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom? But to cling to your afflictions is nothing more than foolishness. As they rise and then melt away again, you must remember this. The sparrowhawk flies through Scylla without anyone noticing. Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom, and that the purest of blossoms emerge from the mire? If someone were to come and ask me what I do, after eating my gruel and rice, I wash my bowl. Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing. You may play all day like a silly child in the sand by the sea, but you must always realize the truth of your original face. When you suffer the blows delivered by the patriarch's staff, if you can't say anything, you will perish by the staff. If you can say something, you will perish by the staff. In the end, what will you do if you are forbidden to travel by night, but must arrive by dawn? Uh, of course, there's a, there's a huge anger. Till now, I combat myself. Sometimes I try to feel sorry, uh, but it's hard. That is, that is maybe what's left from this war that is bad. That is how one time will I be able to forgive those who destroyed everything and who took away a lot of the nice stuff. Literally, I'm not speaking of any material. Every time I think about the friends, the groups, the people that I've met, how we lost all these people. I am angry. Uh, there is, there is at least for those who at uh, one day we thought they should be our leaders and they proved to be corrupted. So it's the only thing that I ask God to give me to be able to counter the feelings because it is hard. I, I do not have this anger toward a particular sect of a religion or a religion. It is against the people who uh, who committed this. Maybe when God, one day God will be uh, merciful enough to make uh, these feelings go away. Gethin's Foundations of Buddhism 
makes reference to the fact that ultimately all responsibility for suffering lies within within individuals, that we have to take responsibility for the suffering that we cause ourselves because we become attached to things that are impermanent, that change. And by latching onto those things and then expecting them to stay around forever when they just can't, just by the nature of how reality works, um, that is where the suffering comes from. Interestingly enough, though, I think that... uh, the thing that helps Iyad the most is his relationship with God. And a second ago I was talking about uh, how impermanent things are the source of the suffering. But here, I think that in Iyad's life, God is the, is the permanent thing, is the thing that's always around no matter, no matter what happens. Through every trial, every tribulation, uh, the good times and the bad, God is there. This can be related, I think, somehow to... In class, we've talked about the analogy of the raft and the river. I think that there's something to be said here in that when Iyad comes to these rivers, these things that are causing him stress or fear, making him hurt, God presents him with opportunities and with things to help him get across across these rivers, across these, across these trials, and then takes some things away, obviously, but God remains with him beyond the crossing of an individual river. So I think that you could almost say that Yad gives up the rafts, but he holds on to the instructions, or the instructions in this metaphor are God. And he is more prepared then, I think, for anything that comes his way. And also, it's worth saying that he's not attached to the individual rafts, he's just attached to his knowledge of how to make them. And I think that that knowledge stems from his his relationship with God. Pertaining to what you just said, I think it's important to note that Buddhism, or at least Buddhism in the way that we've talked about it in class, is decidedly non-theistic, or it's not necessarily theistic. In Buddhism, you don't have a personal God who remains regardless of other external situations. That's a big deal for Iyad and in the tradition that he comes from. How does the, how is this working out? So is are we just is this just a difference that we're going to have to wrestle with? Um I would say that these things don't have to necessarily act as um as binaries. Like they don't have to be in conflict with one another. It was like um, at the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about how we were going to look at these things as just philosophies. Um, And I don't think that necessarily that you have to say that just because he's got a God that he can't, you know, interact with the other sort of the other tenets of of these systems. Um, definitely, definitely, definitely. There is a contrast with Iyad's uh, ways of living and the systems that we've discussed, but um, maybe the, the theistic thing isn't the most important thing. Like we were just discussing how the ultimate goal um, in Buddhism is the cessation of suffering. Everything else is subordinated to that. If he's not suffering, if he's not experiencing the attachment to these things that are so transient, then perhaps a belief in a God is is justified, maybe, a little bit. Or at the very least, that it doesn't have to conflict. I think it's interesting to point out, perhaps, that 
Yad's holding on to this anger and inability to forgive them um, almost as a form of attachment. He's seeking for God to take it away from him, but in a way this really conflicts with some of our texts because he's attaching himself to this worldly anger and this worldly emotion instead of trying to reach understanding and letting go. And it seems like he's off to the right start because he's uh, looking for that peace and that ability to forgive outside of himself. He's looking to God to provide him with the peace and the security he needs to be able to forgive. And actually, also sort of in contrast with Taoism, with this powerful idea of the self, Yad says that he can't forgive and he's submitting a part of his own identity to God by saying that he wishes for for God's grace and the ability to forgive these people who have done this terrible thing that has impacted him so much. That submission, the recognition, once again, of maybe something like weakness, is also congruent from like a, a Buddhist angle in that he's giving up a part of his own identity. And in Buddhism, we have, we have this idea of, of the no self. In, and in Buddhism, the idea of no self is that all that everything is, is the summation of the things that have come before it. And then the things that necessarily come after. And so there's no, there's no individual self because within all possible identities, there's an infinite number of things that occurred before and are going to occur after. All right. Um, so I think, I think we've definitely, we've covered a lot of ground today. Yeah, we did cover a lot today. What I think is interesting though, is that we started this podcast talking about suffering, but throughout his story, we covered so many different bases from fear and loss and attachment and anxiety yeah, and even if not everyone is going to have the same experience as a Yad, uh, none of us have, but there are people who have probably experienced things worse. There are all different levels of suffering in the world. But regardless, I think a lot of the things that we've talked about here are relevant to each and every one of us as we're dealing with the things that arise in our own lives, however small or large they might be. Even though Yad's views are different from some of the Asian philosophies, I think there are some parallels. So we'll leave that for you guys to think about. And until next time, this has been Every Wave. Thank you for listening.